This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. Architectural technology is changing how architects work and what's hot today might be irrelevant and out of date by next week. Ignore these developments at your own peril because today we're talking technology. Today's episode is brought to you with support from BQE Software. Hi everyone, I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today we're going to get all up in your face and technical as we discuss architectural technology. We should insert the old sound of the dial-up modem. Yeah. (laughs) Most of the people listening probably wouldn't even remember that. Yeah, they don't even know what that is. True. So I should say, for my own benefit, for everyone listening, I am getting over a cold, so if I sound bad, or maybe I just sound regular, I don't know. But today I feel like I have a reason for sounding the way I do. (laughs) (laughs) And I also think that we should establish a couple of ground rules with today's topic. We're getting heavy on the ground rules. I think we had some last episode as well. You know what? I'm a fan of ground rules. All right. Because you always accuse me of changing things after the fact. (laughs) (laughs) That's only in the hypothetical. Okay, fair enough. Well, okay, maybe it's not a ground rule, but what I wanted to just kind of introduce up front is we kind of have figured out what topics we're talking about for the entire year. So we have a little bit of time to prepare, but in true, I don't do this for my real job fashion. We tend to put all this stuff together moments, maybe a couple of days. I like to be at least a week out in front, but I'm a moments guy. Yeah. Andrew's a fly by the seat of his pants and I just, I can't do that. So I've been thinking about for today's episode as the theme is architectural technology. While I've said this before, I'm not a Luddite. I'm not that bleeding edge technology guy. I like it. I just don't really care enough to take what precious time I have to rabbit hole myself down on the what ifs and I like to be relevant, but definitely would not describe myself in the bleeding edge camp. So I debated whether or not we should have a specialist on this show. And I don't mean someone who's an architectural technology specialist, because I don't think that's a thing. Um, I just mean someone. (laughs) I want that job. You want that job? Well, it has more to do with, I thought, we need a generalist on, and I go, well, that's Andrew. Well, I got a generalist. I have someone who does like all that stuff and is kind of aware that it exists and what it can do. And so those people exist, and Andrew is one of those type of people. And I decided not to go out and seek someone who's like a specialist because then whatever they specialize in becomes the technology that we talk about, not this kind of overarching conversation, which is really what I want to have today. And it has to do with, how technology is being used in our practices, and is that impacting the work? Is that a good thing or is it a bad thing or some combination between the two? That's what I wanted to talk about, more of a general discussion. So if you came here looking for what's going to come out in 2029 that's going to change the face of architecture, that's not this show. <laughs> yeah, and even if I said it, it'd be wrong. It would be wrong. And Yeah, it would be wrong. Can I, I'll tell you this. As I started to do my research, I actually typed up generic keywords and phrases to try to like say, okay, what else is, what's the chatter on the internet about this as a topic? Mm-hmm. I found an, an article and it was on a major architectural website. You could probably figure it out if you really wanted to try. 
And it had to do with what's architectural technology that every architect ought to be looking at. And they had like nine or 10 things on their list. Yeah. None of them exist. And if they do, nobody uses them. And this article came out two years ago. Yeah. These bleeding edge, like, oh my God, this is going to change everything two years ago. So I did a straw poll in my office. I said, have you heard of bam, bam, boom, bop, 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 bam, all of them. Everyone's like, no, what is that? You're, those are made up words. <laughs> I mean, I actually, I found the article as well and looked at it. And yeah, some of them, I mean, they actually were made up words. They were just made up words for the software, or the application. Yeah. But I will say that some of them, I think, I dug a little further. Some of them actually do still exist and are in use. I just don't think that the perceived application to our profession played out the way somebody thought it would. Yeah, I know that some of them are still there because I clicked on them myself, like the first one I clicked on. Yeah. And I was like, oh, it still has an active website, but nobody's using this. At least not, yeah, not in our field, right? So I, I took that with a grain of salt and went, okay, so that kind of supported my idea that I didn't want to talk about specific software platforms because either they're big enough to where we know they're going to be around, and I don't want to compare apples to apples. Like, this is going to be a Enscape versus Lumion type of conversation. Yeah. You know, Archicad versus Revit. That's not this conversation. With that in mind, now that we've lost all the techno nerds out for this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Don't be like that. I'm going to try to keep it some techno nerdy. It'll be okay. Fair enough. So here we go. Let's just start with the highest, like the first question that you would think an episode on architectural technology should kind of deal with. And that is, is technology impacting the way we go about our jobs and the appearance of our projects? Now, I can tell you my gut reaction is absolutely. Because there's all this parametric architecture that's out there and things are becoming really, really complicated and there's shapes being designed and everyone's trying to push the envelope. But then I went, you know, that's really not everybody. In fact, that's probably an underwhelming minority of the profession. Everything that I'm seeing does not seem to be driven by what technology can currently do, at least in how our projects are appearing. Now, how they're performing, different matter altogether. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that there are examples of the way that technology is being used to the utmost to actually create projects. The final building is space age looking and parametric, but I would agree that by and far, I think that it doesn't seem to be affecting the end product as much. I think as far as the process and the way that we do things, certainly, but the end result, I don't think has been overwhelming yet that technology is changing the way that we make buildings. Well, I think you should clarify that a little bit. You know, there was a time period where grasshopper and rhino and everyone's doing all these you know programming so that you could like create these amazing shapes and and, you know and that was really influencing what buildings were looking like it seemed for a while that seems to scaled back a little bit but i do think that the data that we're able to gather and collect and keep track of with some of the new platforms that are out there are informing how we're designing our buildings moving forward I know even on real small projects, like I just completed a a co-working space project and the amount of data collection that we built into our projects and into that job so that the owner could own all the data, like how people move through the building, you know, how all the lights are connected, the ability for all the individual users to 
have personal control over their 75 square feet of space. I mean, it's pretty remarkable what that building was able to do. And it was 12,400 square feet. It was not a gargantuan project. But we have that ability to do it, and he knows it. And it got built into our project in such a way that it has a lifespan to it that, you know, I'm done. That project's open. And now it's on him, and he's got a user interface that all the tenants that got put together for his tenants to use for them to set their, how they want their lights to function, what kind of temperature they want in their office. I mean, they literally control just about anything. You don't even have to fob in and out anymore to the space. Your phone can do all that for you. Yeah. So, I mean, that's technology in different application. I mean, it affects, again, the workings of the building, but maybe not the form or the appearance like you were saying before. It definitely affects the end product in a sense of how it operates, what it can do, and those types of things. But yes, I was speaking more to the point about form and appearance in a way. Yes, because that was a that was kind of a two-sided question. One was just the appearance, and one was like, what kind of data can we collect now as a result of using like BIM software? Yeah. And I did was doing some of my own research. And more often than not, that's the big thing that comes up is this idea of technology is really about data-driven architecture and all the data that we can capture in pre-design and in design and at the end and post-occupancy and how do we use all this data that we can create? How do we evaluate it? What do we use it for? And that that is a way that I think technology is really impacting the practice is because we're now able to accumulate and evaluate and analyze all this data before the project even starts. Well, do you think that, so in the past, architecture firms would look to historical precedent on projects that they'd worked on to try to estimate, well, what's it going to take for us to create this project? How much time are we going to have to invest? How are we going to go about determining a fee for this based on what we have historically had to do to deliver a similar project downstream? Mm-hmm. Now we're able to collect a lot of that information and analyze it to kind of position our firms better for an opportunity to be successful and how the creation of the project is managed. That's a big part of what I think now we're able to take some of this big data that exists and turn it inward to the office to see how can we manage and make decisions to protect ourselves and, and how we go about creating our projects. But I also think that, and what I really want to get into, because I know you've done more of this than I have, is, so you use BIM. The last, I don't know, the office I'm in now, we use BIM software. The last office Mm -hmm. I was in, we used BIM software. But there was a big difference between my last office at 8 to 10 people. We were so small, nobody we worked with used the software that we did. So there was no mm-hmm. sharing of files and data. We would have to export out. Like we used Revit is what we used. And I don't want to make this a Revit mm-hmm. conversation, but we used Revit and we would export it out, an AutoCAD file for almost all of our consultants to work with. And then when it went to the contractor, they just got good old fashioned paper drawings or digital files. They did not use any of the intelligence that was built into our documentation. Now that I'm at a 120 yeah. person firm, Everybody we work with is on Revit for the most part, and the sharing of files is much, much easier. There still seems to be this missing piece to where like, everybody has to share a file like once a week, and then we just kind of punt out what they did and put the new stuff in, and it goes back and forth, as opposed to my mind when I was in my small firm that 
the way that I saw the value of everybody using building information modeling is that everybody's working off the same model and you're getting real-time sharing of data. Did you ever have that experience when you were working? As far as yeah. real-time share? No, no. We, I mean, but now you can actually, and again, I don't want to be talking about Revit or whatever, but there is that ability, right, to push that to the cloud and pay for that service to be able to have everybody working in real time. But no, we didn't ever have that. But I also didn't ever work with anybody that wasn't doing Revit in my small eight to 10 person firm. If you were a consultant and you didn't work in Revit, I didn't work with you. I was that bad. <laughs> and I, Well, I think that also might be the fact that you did, my last firm, we did a lot of residential and interior kind of finish out projects. Yeah. And a little bit of commercial work, but it was fairly small scale commercial work. You're working sure. on schools and much bigger kind of scope of work. Yeah. And so those people are, most of the time I was always the smallest firm that was in the group. My engineers were larger. My structural engineers were larger. You know, all those firms I was working with were bigger firms than me. And so that's probably why or how that managed to work out. But yeah, it was sort of the scope and the market sector of work that I was doing that allowed me to do that. Well, so that leads me to my next question, and it has to do with, is the size of the firm, and by extension, the finances associated with the size of the firm, starting to create kind of an upper class, lower class situation to where money is, is what's dictating the ability to use certain technology to your benefit. And here's the easiest example I can think of. So the question I, I posed this actually to a couple of people in my office yesterday had to do with using the cloud and the expense of, like, so our office, our Dallas office has 80 people in it. And we have bandwidth issues even internally. There are times where we have so many people that are drafting and they're syncing back their projects to our server that things start to bog down, even internally. Mm -hmm. And the first thing they brought up, they're like, well, this is a bandwidth issue because if we put our project in the cloud for real-time coordination and sharing, when you have 60 people or however many people there might be in the office that are all working and trying to sync their project to the cloud, the amount of bandwidth that that requires is fairly spectacular. Yeah, for sure. And so even though that you can do that, we don't have the ability to do it. And I go, if we can't do it at a 120-person firm, how could somebody smaller than us even do it? Maybe that's the, the idea that, well, we're smaller, so we don't have as big a need for that bandwidth. Yeah, that actually makes it easier. Where I've got, I could have the same bandwidth as you, but I'm only got five people that are trying to do that. I don't have a bandwidth issue. It's a piece of cake. And that's one of those things where I think it becomes actually more difficult for the larger firms to implement some of this stuff because, or they have to implement it in a scaled incremental version where we can do this many and then this many and then this many because they can't, you can't do it all at once, right? So like, and again, I don't want to start talking about it, but you can pay for a cloud service through Revit that'll allow that live real time. And it's so much dollars per seat per month to host your models up there. Well, if you do that, and I've only got five people that I need that. That's not a big deal as opposed to 60. You know, the cost, even though you've got, you've got more resources, I still think it's a bigger bite than for smaller firms. Well, you know, there's also the idea. I was talking to one of the guys in my office named Lane. He was saying how, like for him, 
he worked in Louisiana. He worked for Boca Powell for a while. And this guy's amazing too, by the way. Uh, I think you two would probably have a good time chatting with each other. But he worked for Boca Powell for a while. Then for family reasons, he went back to Louisiana for a little while. Still kind of helped us out from time to time. Mm-hmm. But he opened his own office and it's primarily him doing all the work. And he said that he's paying $50 a month to get 300 megabytes up and down service as him as a, just a dude. But as soon yeah. as he makes that a business account, a business account, yeah, he pays for $50. He might get a hundred up 10 down. Like he yeah, goes, yeah. it totally changes. Sure. Yeah. The changes, which is another thing that we kind of, I'm not really sure why, if you're just paying for data packets that the cost should change based on whether it's personal use or whether it's business use. Cause it's, it's just data, right? Yeah, yeah, I know. But I guess my assumption would be that they assume that a business is going to have more traffic than a, a personal thing. But I've never really understood either because, right, I have to pay for it at my house and I have to pay for it at my office. And there are two different rates for the same stuff. And it's kind of annoying. But Yeah. Well, you think I'm just paying for capacity. Yeah, I know. I don't know. I don't know how it works. Okay, well, let's move on from that because... That's a whole other rabbit hole. It's a whole other rabbit hole. So let me ask you about this. Do you think because of the way BIM software works, are we now over-documenting our projects? My answer is no, but at times I think I'm in a minority there that thinks that. But I over-documented when I wasn't in BIM, so I have a tendency to just do that in general. Well, that sounds like that's a yes, though, because you said you were over-documenting before, so you're still over-documenting. What someone would consider over-documenting. I don't think so. I don't think there is such a thing as over-documenting. The funny thing to me is I think that BIM, at least in what I've seen, has actually decreased some amounts of documentation in a way, at least in some of the work I've seen from other firms that used to come through my office when I shared it with a contractor. Their drawings actually got less informative when they started doing BIM, and I think that was a knowledge restraint, quite honestly, in making that switch. So I don't know now. It's hard for me to say. I mean, what do you think? Do you think it's caused this glut of over-documentation? I do. I think it has. And I think part of it is it falls into the the easiest way to describe it is because we can, we do. Yeah. And a lot of times there's information. I'll look at it. I might be redlining a set and I'll go, why is this in here? There's, this doesn't tell me anything. It's just taking up space. It's more areas that could lead to different types of questions. It introduces a variable of uncertainty because sometimes you know, what I've noticed, not being a person who draws in Revit as part of my day-to-day life, is that the level of detail that gets put into a Revit model at the larger scales, when you cut a section, the idea is that you need to go in and supplement the data that's in the section you just cut because you're just... You yeah, there's nothing there. Yeah, I mean, it's just sort of object. Yeah, and then I look at it and I'll go, what is that? I mean, I, and I know the project. I'll look at it and I'll say, this... This section you cut actually creates more questions than it resolves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I think that's a bad thing. And I think that it opens you up for a certain amount of, I don't know, exposes you to issues that maybe you wouldn't have been exposed to previously. So I do think that over-documenting is a thing. Yeah, but see, to me, and what you, the thing that you just made was not an over-documentation issue. What you're saying is what, what got documented wasn't even anything. So, it, I mean, I agree it's a 
the idea of, well, we can, so we do. So I'm going to cut, since it's so easy, I'm going to cut 15 sections through this building because all that takes is three clicks and I've got them all. I agree with that, that that tends to happen, but I'm not sure that I would call that over-documentation, but because you're not really documenting anything of use. But I guess, I mean, I see what you're saying. And I I think that that does happen. You're right, that it's like, well, I can cut a section here and here and here because all I've got to do is make three clicks and then I can put it on a page. But does that really become useful, right, is a question. Okay, well, then let me ask you this because I know you were an early adopter of Revit. Yeah. So one of the things, and I don't want to get, I don't want people to come back and say, well, yeah, he doesn't use it, so of course he would think that. (laughs) Okay. But one of the things that, it seems to me that one of the original selling points of building information modeling was that it would create better architects because you're not just drawing ignorant, non-informative, two-dimensional lines. You're actually assembling a building. And Yeah. But what I've seen is that there's enough intelligence in that software to where it seems like the skill set of the person creating it doesn't have to be as high because the software's taking care of some of that for them and they don't realize when something's not what it should be. I don't I don't think that we're getting better architects as a result of this new drafting software. I don't either. I, I mean I agree with you on that. And the reason I can say it is because I have students and they can make all kinds of stuff, but it doesn't in Revit and you know, it looks like it would stand up and it looks like a building, but when you get into it, there's a lot of issues. I mean, I agree in a sense that it does make some things easier to to represent, even though they're not real. So, I don't know. I think the intent, probably, like you said, that it's going to make us better architects, might be, might have been the intent, but it doesn't. That doesn't turn into the reality of it because I can do some stuff and software will fill it in in a way, or I can just use the software to fill it in, but it doesn't really make sense or is buildable or any of that stuff. So. I mean, I agree with that idea, but I think, again, it's the user. The user has a lot of control in that. Yeah, and it's that issue when you combine it with the over-documentation, cutting the sections just as you can, that's when we're creating these problems, yeah. I think. Yeah, I agree to a certain extent. The other thing I would say about just BIM in general, I still don't think that we've reached a level of usage that it's actually A, capable of, and B, intended for. And I don't think that's all our fault. I think some of it is, and I'm not saying it's the construction industry's fault either, but there's information and, you know, I mean, all kinds of information that we can put into a BIM model that is not getting used by the construction team when they get it, if they sure. Because again, I mean, I did a lot of stuff and, you know, built in a lot of data into it, but then when it goes to a construction team and it's a set of, you know, traditional print you know, two-dimensional documents, they lose a lot of what the point of doing it in BIM was anyway. More from Life of an Architect in just a moment. So Andrew and I are sitting down with Steve Burns, FAIA, the Chief Creative Officer for BQE Software. BQE Software is the developer for BQE Core, a software that's backed by 24 years of firm management experience, is a complete and flexible business platform made for architects, by architects to help manage their firm so they can focus on what they love to do most. So Steve, there's some people out there, it's possible, they don't know what BQE Core is. So let's just take a minute and tell folks, what is BQE Core? 
And the idea of BQE Core really is to free architects from the drudge work that's involved with running a business, running a project, and give them more free time to do really what they love most, what their clients hire them to do. So it's as simple as helping you in tracking your time appropriately to invoicing your clients, to the whole workflow of a project, how it's broken down into phases, what activities or tasks people have. Part of your quality control, let's say, that we have to do the zoning and code analysis before we start plans and sections and elevations, because we don't do that. We don't have the right setbacks or height restrictions, so we're designing without clear information. So we're going to give you a framework for running your projects and your firm. And ultimately, since we are very much focused on finance, is bringing to you what's called project accounting the ability to look right down at the project level as opposed to your firm's accounting. If you use accounting software, typically like a QuickBooks, that's really good at helping you with a balance sheet and a profit loss statement, typical reports that most firms use to make sure they're healthy, but it doesn't tell you about the health of every individual project. Sure. So Core is about project accounting as well. Well, you and I were chatting earlier, and Andrew was part of this conversation as well, and we just kind of said, you can't manage what you can't measure. And that at its core... See what I did there? Oh, very sorry. Good one, good one, good one. (laughs) (laughs) That at its core is the value that this software can bring to the people who use it. Right. So measurement is also just an interesting topic because if you stand on a scale, you think you're measuring something. You're measuring your weight, but you're not measuring your health, right? So if you see that there's a change in the weight, like maybe you're losing weight, you might attribute that to something. Maybe... It was the donut you didn't just eat, or maybe it was the fact that you got on a bike and rode for an hour before going into work in the morning. But it's hard to know that from the scale. So we have to measure everything that's going into the firm to find out, are you truly healthy? Not just, do you weigh the right amount? Yes, this is about measuring what you value. The way that we kind of talked about it earlier is that you're measuring what's valuable to you against what's valuable to your clients. That is one essential fundamental piece of information, which is time. If you measure time, because that's really precious, we don't have a lot of time. We have infinite ideas, but time for us is we got 24 hours in the day, unless you're a lawyer and they have about 30 hours in a day. (laughs) But we measure that time, valuable to us, against what's valuable to our client, which is really our ideas. Put those two together and you'll get to understand how healthy are you and how healthy is each of those projects. How healthy is that particular client in your world, in your firm? Because some clients might thrive under one firm's care, but not under a different firm. I hear firms tell me, we don't measure our time. We don't bill for our time. So why measure my time? We have fixed fee contracts, or we do percentage of the cost of construction contracts. So it doesn't matter how many hours we spend. That's true. It doesn't matter if you're billing your client how many hours you've spent. But if you don't know how many hours you've put into that project, you can't at all understand your profit on that project. Sure. So that's why these horrible time cards that you were talking about earlier, the fact that it's your responsibility to measure where you spent your day will come back, not because it's needed necessarily for building any particular project, but it's needed for you to understand, is there a better way to do it next time? What can we learn from that lesson? Let's just not say, oh, there's another project we didn't make any money on. We'll hope to make money better. Maybe it's because you didn't have enough time picking up red lines. You didn't have enough time doing quality control or peer review or whatever those things are that you should be tracking. Tracking additional services is another major issue that most firms are very bad at doing. And we provide a means for them to be able to track that, whether they end up billing it or not. At least let's start understanding what are we doing that's not under our original contract. And then maybe next time learn a lesson about the fact that we'll give them one freebie, but we're going to let them know that. 
And then in the future, we're going to start invoicing them for that. Okay. So Steve has done something really nice. Life of an Architect podcast listeners can receive 10% discount off annual course subscription when you sign up today for a free trial. Visit www.bqe.com forward slash LOAA to learn how the complete and flexible business platform made for architects by architects will help manage your firm so you can focus on what you love to do the most. And we'll put that link at the bottom of the page in the show notes. Steve, thanks for being with us today. Thank you very much, Bob and Andrew. I really enjoyed this. Thanks, Steve. Well, let me ask you this. So I have that as one of the topics we should discuss is about the use of technology at schools or within university environments versus the real world. Mm -hmm. And I know that we've brought it up a few times because you have a whole 3D printing lab and there's yeah. dozens of pieces of equipment where the most I've ever seen in a working office is like four, four or five. Yeah. And as a group of us were chatting about this yesterday, they brought up things like, well, the software platforms that people learn in school or the, the assignments that they get. What we see is a lot of grasshopper and rhino type knowledge coming out of the schools but very few people I know actually use those softwares in their jobs as professionals. Yeah, I would agree. That's one of the things that I don't understand about as a new person coming in, right, a new faculty. Even though I've known that that's what they've used, I, you've yet to figure out why. And I don't know if it's because that, in reality, you can create more of the parametric and space age. You can get really intricate and wild with form in those software applications quite easy. And that may be the reason, because they really actually are less architecture-oriented and more design-oriented, if that makes sense. Sure. I've never understood the fascination with those in, in academia. I don't really know. Other than what I just said, that it's, there's more freedom in there and you're not really tied into making quote-unquote buildings. I know that there's people out there that use them professionally, clearly, but I don't know many personally that use them. Yeah. I mean, I know some firms that do that. The majority of those firms are more into fabrication. Or I know I was talking to Marlon Blackwell once, and he was talking about how they used it for one project to try to solve a specific problem on a project. It was used just for that, but then they took all of that information and dumped it into their BIM software so that they could do it from there. I think even still, for most cases, it's like a design software. It's a replacement for, say, SketchUp, maybe in your office. And then at some point, whatever I get to, in that software then gets translated into a BIM platform so that I can actually start making a built documentation out of it. I agree. One of the things you said that was interesting, the only time that in my life that we've used, and we used Grasshopper, mm -hmm. was actually, it was for a restaurant design that we were working on. It was in the Middle East. And they had hired a sculptor, an artist, to design this kind of scale pattern that undulated and warped its way through the entire space. And he came to us to say, how do we figure out how to do this and to make it and then install it? And the only way that we could figure it out was we actually had one of our interns at the time, and he's going to one of the state schools who had, he was pretty good at using Grasshopper. He ended up modeling everything so that we would know that it would fit and what size pieces everything could be. And eventually it got to the point to where when he was presenting it to the clients, they realized just how bespoke 
what they were having him do was, and they killed the project. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, that's funny. Like all that effort, and they go, "Oh wait, that's crazy. We can't do that." Yeah, they're like, "How many different?" Maybe in the show notes for this episode, I'll put a couple images because. I mean, we did a mock-up of it. I have sketches to figure out, like, okay, how might we attach this? It's in my Instagram feed, you know, when this when yeah. this process was going on. And it would have been fun, but the sculptor we were working with, he was like, okay, now you guys that are helping me with this, you have to be on the installation team because nobody knows how this works except for you guys. <laughs> so, so I mean, I guess there's some job security in that, but at the same time, kind of crazy, right, to be like, oh... Yeah, well, this one guy's like, now that we know how it works, we can't do it. He's like, I got to go back to school, (laughs) you know? I can't go to Riyadh (laughs) for um, two months. Yeah, Yeah, that's funny. Oh, like the intern guy that that built the whole thing? (laughs) He's like, hey, we want you to come and do this. He's like, yeah, I can't. I can't do that. (laughs) It's like, I got to go back to school, dudes. I don't know. I might have taken a semester off to go to Riyadh and build something cool, but. Yeah, well, it didn't happen. Yeah, anyway. Interesting. Okay, so let's move on to, we actually, I have like 20 more of these. We'll have to cut. I know. know. We'll have to cut some of these out because one of the questions that came up, so when I put all this list together, I grabbed two guys in my office that I considered to be, one of them's definitely a bleeding edge technology guy. The other guy is, it has to have value, but he's as good on any of the software that we have in our office as anybody else. Like, there's nothing that, and, and that's a lot. I mean, he could do anything in Revit. He can do anything in SketchUp. He can do, I mean, he just knows all this stuff. He's that guy. His brain works that way. So I asked him a bunch of these questions, you know, and they were coming up with their own versions of how that conversation could be pushed in one direction or another. And for one of the guys, his question was, are you guys going to talk about real value software? That's what he called it. And I was like, well, what does that really mean? He goes, you know, stuff that we actually use. You come out of school knowing how to use 10 different pieces of software. But, and again, not to pick on Rhino or Grasshopper. He's like, everyone comes out of school putting Rhino and Grasshopper on their skills assessment sheet, but nobody has SketchUp on there. And he goes, SketchUp is like super, super easy for people to learn, but it's a real value software for us. You know, and I was like, okay, that's a fair question. You know, I'm going to be going on, you know, this next week, I'm starting my recruiting trip, so I'm going down to different colleges to talk to students. Maybe that's something I'll ask them. Mm-hmm. But we said, okay, so what would be some real value software? What are some platforms that are out there that you think have real value to them? And of course, we came up with, for us, I genericized it. I made Revit BIM. Because depending on the size of the firm you're in, you know, there's still a lot of people out there that use AutoCAD and even AutoCAD LT because they don't need the 3D portion of what full-blown AutoCAD can do for them. Sure. But I also know that a lot of the bespoke architectural firms that focus on residential, a lot of them use ArchiCAD, and they're really, really passionate about it. My joke is always, the people on Revit hate it, but they won't use anything else. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, the people that use Revit hate Revit. Yeah, they hate it, but they're like, but it's still better than everything else. It's better than everything else. It's the best, but I hate it. People that use ArchiCAD, they love it. I mean, they will, they'll defend it to their dying. They'll day. pull the gloves off, yeah, and say just oh, yeah. how amazing it is. They'll pull your jersey over your head and start <laughs> pounding it. <you. Yeah. laughs> That's right. So on our real value software, so we came up with, I put BIM on there mm-hmm. on our office SketchUp, and I would say in. My last office, I was the only one that used it because everyone else was super fluent in Revit. 
But the office before that, we use SketchUp all the time. I'm not in the Albatross firm now that uses SketchUp. I mean, I know that it gets used in a lot of other places. You use it. Yeah, we used it in my office. Yeah, it's it's a design tool for sure. Uh, we put Bluebeam on that list. Yeah, that's a good one. And I'll tell you, it's funny. I still remember going to a Texas Society of Architects convention like four years ago, maybe. Yeah. And it was it was a session. I don't know that if it was on Bluebeam, but that was what I walked away with. And I walked away going, that software can do anything. It's amazing. And I've never even heard of it. Yeah. So we had it at my last office and we used it for all the kind of marking up drawings and whatnot. How we use it in, at Boca Pal is like on another level. Oh, yeah. Like even just the introduction of sessions to where we can have like five people working in a single PDF document at once. Mm-hmm. You know, we have like, hey, if you create a red line, it's actually red. But if you got a question, it's in green. And, and if you've resolved it, you switch to yellow. And they have all these kind of methodologies that they put in place so that everybody can be sure. working on these projects at the same time. And and, yeah. in, and in that session, I know that you can pull up a drawing inside Bluebeam and you can click on an elevation tag and you can give it intelligence and it'll take you to that elevation, elevation. in the set. And mm-hmm. I mean, the things that you can do with it are amazing. So I go, that's a real value software for us. Everybody uses it. Mm-hmm. We also put the Adobe Suite on there, yes, which for us is primarily Photoshop and InDesign. Mm-hmm. And I probably use Photoshop every day. I would imagine. And most of mine comes from my use of it has to do with the blog site. I'm constantly editing pictures and resizing it and cropping stuff out and adding text to them. And I'm not using it for what it can do, but I can get in there and I can do what I need to do. And I've been doing that for a long time. But when I had to create my application for fellowship, you know, when I got my FAIA, Mm -hmm. I had to learn InDesign because that's the platform to create that sort of document. Yeah. And that's what our marketing department uses. What they do and how they use it with being able to link things in so that they can update files and it gets updated across all the projects that they've created rather than creating standalone documents that have to be modified every single time. Incredibly valuable. Yeah. I mean, I've been using InDesign for years as well. I mean, that's what I use for everything that I do. If it's got text and images at all, I mean, other than like something I would do in Photoshop that's an image that's got like words on it. or So that's all of our marketing, our SOQs, the portfolios, any of that kind of stuff. I mean, my resume, all that is all in InDesign. It's funny to me that they don't teach that, at least at where I'm at. I've discovered that they don't do much InDesign. They use Illustrator a lot, which to me is like the least valuable. <laughs> no offense. That may just be me, but like I don't really use Illustrator. It's Photoshop and InDesign, but they use Illustrator a lot more than anything else, which is weird to me. I never used Illustrator, but I always wanted to because whenever I was creating graphics, you can still keep it as a vector as opposed to pixelating it into... Yeah. I mean, there's definitely some value to it. I think that there is. And actually, there's... I should say, and I because I just tried to do something in it, or had to do something in it for one of my classes, and you can get bigger images, so to speak. The ability to create an image of large size is easier in Illustrator than it is in Photoshop. Yeah. Well, that makes and sense. And when I say large, I mean like, you know, 48 feet, huge, 20 feet. That's easier in Illustrator. Although you really can't do 20 feet. I found that out recently. <laughs> As I was trying to make something for this, my class, and I couldn't, I had to split it up because they wouldn't get to 20 feet long. It was like 13 inches short or something. And I was like, seriously? Anyway. All right, let me ask you this. 
So we've been at this for a while, and I have one, two, three, four, five, six more areas that we could get into, but we're not going to be able to get into them all. I know. So is there one in particular? Here's your opportunity to wow everybody. Uh Is there one particular (laughs) one that you would like to get into? We can talk about laptops and desktops. We can talk about LiDAR. We can talk about the use of drones. Yeah, so let's do this. I was going to give you the opportunity. I'll just see if you disagree with this. Why don't we talk about laptops and desktops for just a minute? Kind of the reason I, I put it on here as a topic was, I still remember how if you bought a new computer, within about a year or two, the new version had come out, and it was way better than the version you currently had. <laughs> yeah. And, okay. And that doesn't really seem to be the case so much anymore, because now computers seem to last as long as their parts do. You know, when I had to upgrade my MacBook, it wasn't because it stopped functioning from a performance standpoint. It stopped functioning from a mechanical equipment standpoint. You know, like keys are sticking and I'm running out of capacity every five minutes on my hard drive because originally you couldn't swap out your hard drives and get something bigger. And, you know, I just needed something different. It wasn't that it was outdated and the processing core was garbage now and it took four hours to boot up, which was lightning fast when I got it a year ago. And now it's half as long to do that kind of thing. Yeah. And? And so I just think it's kind of interesting as an idea that the rate at which computer technology was evolving over the last 30 years was at this blistering pace. And then it seems like, well, last five years, not so much, like nothing really happening anymore. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I think that processing speed is still changing. RAM speed is still changing. The biggest changer is still storage capacity. That's continuing to evolve and grow. But to me right now, I think the real difference is, is for a while, the software was outpacing the hardware. And so software was accelerating at a speed that that's what made your computer outdated was because the software got heavier and you needed more power to catch up and to operate the software and those sorts of things. But now that they've sort of started to even out a little bit where the software isn't just way far ahead of what the computing capacity is. And so that's why they seem to last a little bit longer. Yeah. And that's what I wanted you to say. That was the point of this, I believe, because because that was the rate limiting step. You know, how long did it take for you to process this this graphic you were doing, this image? Right. If you're going to render something, you'd set it up and you'd... And you'd walk away and then 27 hours later, it'd be done. Where now it's like maybe 27 minutes if you want to like super fine, highly detailed, photorealistic image. And even then, it's probably not that long. Yeah. And I'm wondering, have we gotten to the point where the the incremental changes are so incremental as to be irrelevant? It's the idea that there's more computing power on my cell phone than what got the Apollo missions to the moon. Yeah, exactly. Probably your desktop five years ago. Yeah. Now, instead of me being able to put all my content on a chip the size of my thumb, I can put all of it on a chip that's half the size of my thumb. Yeah, exactly. Like it's already, I know. It's already small. It's already compact. It's already can do what I need it to do. The difference is so, like, even if it's twice as good as what it was, it doesn't click because if we're going from, oh, it can compute this in four nanoseconds, and now it's only two nanoseconds. Well, I can't tell the difference between four yeah. and two nanoseconds. So, And I think that's where we're at right now. My own personal inclination is that at some point we'll reach that again, where the need of computing power is going to lag behind, but we're not there yet. 
we've reached this point of equilibrium at the moment. And there's going to have to be some new giant change that's going to put us into that cycle again where, oh, I've got to get a new device or a new computer all the time because I can't keep up with the software or the needs of the computing power. You know what I think that moment's going to be? It's when we're going to start putting computer chips in our person. In our head? Yes. Well, we're already working that way now, right, to where they're so small. You know, they're just not small enough. That's still probably more about the physical aspects of it than the actual computing power. Because, again, I think computing power-wise, we have enough now to make that happen. We just don't have the technology to make it that small. There you go. That's uh, architectural technology in a nutshell. (laughs) I don't know about that, but... As we're parachuting in, that's the view from parachuting in. Good chat. Kind of hard conversation today about architectural technology to keep it at the elevated level. We were you know, kind of trying to keep it general, but actually have it be of some value. It's kind of a little bit harder than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, it's a difficult line to, to balance. So I'm going to segue from architectural technology into something that could not be further from architectural technology. <laughs> Let's do it. That's this episode's hypothetical question, which... This particular question was submitted by a listener, Jason Shannon from J Spy Architecture. So, you know, we get these from occasion. Sometimes they're so crass. I go, well, I can't use that. (laughs) (laughs) This one I thought was an interesting one. So I'll, I'll read it and then we'll see where it takes us. Okay. All right. So here's the question. There's two options, right? You're choosing one option over the other. So option one is, You have the choice of being an artist who is very successful in their lifetime. You are both wealthy and lauded by the public and your peers during your life, but soon after you die, your work is seen as a fad and you are completely forgotten and seen as irrelevant if they did remember you. Option two, you're a starving artist who never gains financial wealth or popularity in your lifetime, but after you die, the public recognizes your work as genius and your work dramatically affects future artists and world culture, your works in museums for the rest of time. Which one of these two options would you choose? Hmm. (laughs) You know, honestly, and this is just based solely on my personality, I would probably choose option A. I'm rich and famous and well-known while I'm alive, and then if I die, I go into obscurity. Mainly because I'm afraid if I went the other route, I would really, I would just give up. You would just like, you'd end it all? Exactly. I wouldn't make it through that starving artist, no one appreciates me, because to me that sounds really, really a desolate lifestyle. Not that some people like your work, everybody thinks you're terrible. I don't think I could handle that <laughs> people personally. Are, people are throwing vegetables at you yeah. as you walk down the street. Yeah. <laughs> I would end up eating bullets before I made three pieces of art, and then that would be it. So there would be no me. So that's why I would choose the first option of notoriety and fame and wealth during my lifetime. Secondly, because, and this is, I guess, the parent part of me, right? Doing that, I would be able to set up my children to have their life be good once I was gone, whereas I don't want to leave my children with Jack Bupkis. Well, I think that the second option actually makes your entire descendant line set up for life. Well, not really. You have a whole warehouse full of paintings that, well, for you, you bit a bullet after three, so that was, <laughs> three. That was bad well, on you. No, no, but hold on, let me finish. If you have a whole warehouse full of paintings that you couldn't sell to save your life, that all of a sudden, when you die, the people are like, oh my God, this work is actually amazing. All of that's there. And it sounded like from the way that I took this question was, 
we've seen this in other works by artists that were recognized for what they contributed to society and from their art, was that the value of that work continues to climb and grow. So the value of that warehouse of stuff that you couldn't give away is going to be worth far more than what you would be able to pass on from what you earned during your celebrity life, option one choice. I didn't interpret it that way. I didn't interpret that I had a warehouse of stuff that was sitting there that nobody wanted. That was your interpretation because that's not what it says to me. It just says that my work became noted and influential after I was dead, but it didn't say anything about... Well, there's no popularity, so you're creating work that nobody wants. So I'm assuming it's sitting somewhere. Maybe. Maybe I destroyed it all. (laughs) It might be recognized as genius, but it doesn't mean it exists. Or I could have sold it all for five bucks to somebody, and then now once it becomes valued that those people are making the money off of it, not me. It's not, I mean, if you think about it, it's not like, I don't know, Picasso's making any money off his work because it's selling for millions and millions of dollars now or his family. I bet they are. Or his family. Are you kidding? There's Picasso museums. The people who own that work don't own the museums. His name, his likeness, all that stuff, that's all his descendants. They get all that. You know, and Picasso's a good way to look at it because that dude averaged four pieces of work a day. What I don't know is, I don't know if he's got kids all over the place or not, but I know yeah, that I, I know that stuff was just laying around all over the place. Otherwise, it would be sitting in one of the 30 Picasso museums that are around the world. But I guess that's my question, though. Is I don't know how the rights would work once somebody's dead. I have no clue about how that actually works out. What kind of rights are transferred to my children as far as likeness rights and dividends and payouts and all that kind of stuff based on my likeness when I'm dead and... I'm an artist and somebody buys a, an Andrew Hawkins bobblehead. Do my kids get money off of that bobblehead or not? What are the royalty rights at? If it happens after someone's dead, assuming when you're alive, you've got that worked out. But once you're dead and you're not there to do it, I don't really know how that stuff operates. I know that it's still there because just think of all the Elvis Presley stuff that goes to his estate. I can't just make an Elvis Presley calendar and make money on it. Yeah, I have to license true. all that stuff. But again, my thing is, it's not like he was famous after he was dead. He was famous beforehand. So my assumption is all that was set up while he was alive. Yeah. His children were put into this estate, and it was all worked out before he died. Yeah, but he didn't die like they didn't see that coming. And he was still pretty young. I know. Still, I'm assuming that there was things like that that were already in place, though. Because at the time, I mean, I couldn't make money off of Elvis Presley's face if I didn't license it through Elvis Presley, even when he was alive. Yeah, I'm not sure that some of the delivery mechanisms we have in place now existed when he was alive either, so... That's probably true as well. Okay, well, I don't know why I'm arguing with you, because I choose option one, too. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, what the crap, man? Well, you know, at first I thought this would be, like, a hard one, because I think I prefer... I prefer the idea. Let's see how I can articulate this. In both scenarios, I think that my descendants are covered. Because either I'm going to have enough money when I die in option one that she's going to be covered, or she'll be able to make money from this process after I'm dead. So that's off the table. I'm not worried about that. Okay. I don't really like the idea of living in poverty, (laughs) you know, and having people throw vegetables at you. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like the idea that I'm a starving artist who never gains any sort of popularity. But the idea that something... And this is kind of the same thing in exact opposites. 
the idea that something you did having such lasting value that forever and ever you're recognized as having been something special and unique and worth remembering has a very strong appeal to me over the, well, you're seen as a fad and your work is garbage and nobody cares about you shortly after you die. That one stings. That one, I kind of go, mm. but then you go, I'm not around for it. So what does it matter? <laughs> yeah. I know, exactly. So it kind of suggests that maybe part of this conversation has to do with your take on an afterlife. Like, is there an afterlife and is there any kind of consciousness associated with that afterlife for you to either appreciate option two in a way that you couldn't when you were alive or suffer from option one because you went from being something to Almost, a, I'll say a laughing stock because if it's discounted to a degree to where it's seen as fad and you're forgotten, ouch, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like that would hurt. Yeah, but you're dead. You don't know. Yeah. I guess maybe I sit there and think, hmm, maybe there's some sort of awareness that happens after I live. Maybe I've got that in my brain somewhere. Well, you know, this makes me think, I'm curious, in this whole scenario, you could replace the word artist with architect? Oh, I did. Yeah, exactly. And so part of me hopes I live long enough to see some of the, the works of architecture that are built now that I don't really, that I don't think are that impressive, but seem to gain popularity and notoriety. What happens to those 40 to 50 years from now, once those folks are dead, but I'm still alive to see if, if something has changed about the attitude of those. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I'll be able to live long enough to see that happen. Yeah, that would be hard. But then I also circle back around to the fact that when I asked this to the people in my office, they spent zero time in going, uh, option one, I want to enjoy <laughs> I want to enjoy it all. Yeah, that's where I'm at. The idea of having such a desolate, desperate, starving artist life is just not appealing to me. I'm like somewhere in the middle, like if I could just have a decent life and then be decently remembered afterwards, that would be the ideal situation. Let me just have half of each and then I'd be okay. But... That wasn't an option. It's got to be the extremes. Yeah, or of course. It's not a very good hypothetical. So I'm going to call this a wrap because we're both decided that we want to be rich and Rich lauded. and famous. <laughs> yes. yes. While we're alive, we want the cred. Yeah, I still feel bad for answering that question, though. So maybe I'll be successful and wealthy, but feel bad about myself. <laughs> <laughs> but you won't because at the time, you're going to be thinking, Man, everybody's going to know about me for the rest of eternity because you're so well-known and loved and everything. It, you're going to be thinking, I've created a legacy for forever. Yeah, but you just dead. you but you get the choice here. You're going to know. I chose this. So you know that you're Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. Yeah. So we're saying like this is a magical genie situation they come in and say here's what it is. I didn't think it was that. I thought it was just if it happened and that's why. Again, you with your like I got to make it worse. Rule benders. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm kind of depressed. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm going to call it a wrap. Thank you for being with us today for episode 44, Architectural Technology. We would also like to thank BQE for their gracious support of this episode, as well as our media partners, Building Design and Construction. If you liked today's episode, please take the next 15 seconds and head over to your favorite podcast listening app of choice. 
hit the subscribe button so you can get stanky fresh <laughs> new episodes automatically downloaded every two weeks. While you're there, but only if you're in a good mood, please leave us some feedback as we'd really like to hear your thoughts on the show and a five-star press Control-Alt-Delete rating. Be sure to visit the original lifeofanarchitect.com for show notes, info, links, and photos from this episode. And be sure to stick around until the very end. And maybe we'll include some outtakes from the show to reward or punish you. Thanks so much for tuning in. Hasta luego. Take it easy, everybody. Uh-huh. I saw you type that I was a... <laughs> and I got nothing. I was like, well, maybe he just didn't see it. And I no, I, I saw it. I was just ignoring it. God, that's no fun. I, that's why I do it. Ugh. I just did it because I knew you were expecting me not to. I know it. I'll leave it in there too, and I'll just <laughs> bleep. <laughs> no, bleep I'll, I'll delete it when it's time to edit. No, I'll stick it back in. I hate super chicks. Now you took me there once. Yeah, other people like it. I just don't. Oh, it's 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 too <laughs> extra. It's too extra. Are you like coloring? No. What I hear is like, like. Oh, shuffling. shaking my leg. <laughs> but it's not showing up on the screen. It's just because of the microphone on my chest is bouncing up and down. No, 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 I'm not. I'm not worried about it being recorded. I'm just wondering the, if you're actually like coloring in your closet. So I'm I'm medicated up. Michelle goes, "You're gonna sound weird," and I go, uh, "I'm not sure how that's different than how I normally sound." I don't think you sound too bad. <laughs> Ringing endorsement. <laughs> <laughs>